0: First chapter of Genesis. are continuing to look at Genesis 1. We've looked at the event, what happened, what God did. We've considered the result, what kind of world God spoke into existence. This week we turn to the point of creation, the purpose. Now we examine what is the plan for which creation is designed. Um, if you build a sports car, a Porsche, a Lamborghini, Maserati, you have an exquisite marvel of craft and tooling. But what is that for? What is the point of these seven days of wonder? He made the world for the glory of God on the earth, in the history of mankind, through the lives of ordinary families. You read from verse 24 of chapter one down to verse three of chapter two. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything creeps on the ground according to its kind. were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Please pray with me. Father, please give us understanding that we would with reverence and expectation hear what you've promised to do in the preaching of your word. We ask that you would give us clarity that your word would make clear to us who you are and who we are and where we are and what we're doing. Glorify your son, we pray in his name. Amen. We could read this this passage from the Genesis history like the most elevated kind of nostalgia. Nostalgia. That was the lost golden age. These were the good old days that we spend our lives seeking to get some piece of or, or even just trying to remember how wonderful it used to be. Oh, if only the world weren't spoiled. If only Ecclesiastes didn't ring true. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He made the world for the glory of God on the earth in the history of mankind through the lives of ordinary families. The glory of God on earth. Now we think of sunsets and mountain vistas or even the the fresh richness of a meadow embroidered with wildflowers and the buzz of bees. The glory of God in the history of mankind? Really? Really? The glory of empires is more likely to accurately and acutely bring up thoughts of genocide and bloody idolatry, that that summary of human life, nasty, brutish, and short. God's glory (coughs) to ordinary families? Now, our common sense says it. All families are dysfunctional. It's just a question of degrees. No, this purpose is not abandoned. It is not ruined and irrelevant. The God of Genesis 1 did not give up. He sent his son to save. Jesus came to accomplish this original purpose. He made the world for the glory of God on the earth, in the history of mankind, through the lives of ordinary families. And we're listening to Genesis 1 in order to trust in Jesus and rejoice with the angels. Hear this from Luke chapter 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God Genesis 1 sent his son. He made. He made the world. For his glory on the earth, in human history, through ordinary families. Now you must realize that God finished the work of creation. Our our shorter catechism, question eight, asks, How doth God execute his decrees? And the answer is simple. He executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Genesis 1 is a completed beginning, a finalized starting point. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Creation is finished. What is it for? God saw everything that he had made, and behold, It was very good. Good for what? The creation of Adam and Eve was not just the climax of the creation work. The creation of man was the summoning of all creation to its purpose. Here is your own purpose. Here is the plan to which Jesus submitted himself in order to rescue the world from ruin. He made the world for the glory of God on the earth, in the history of mankind, through the lives of ordinary families. He made the world for the glory of God on the earth, and this is the point of Genesis 1:27. So God created man in His own image, an image of God He created him, male and female He created them. Now the Bible, as a whole expands the meaning of God's image in many ways. But I just want you to hear the central point in that little piece of poetry. Men and women exist to display God's glory on the earth. Now I need to unpack Moses' words here with some care because on the surface they are surprising. Hear what God says in verse 26. Let us Make man in our image after our likeness. That plural, us and our, has puzzled people for ages. Why does God speak that way? And why does the poem, the vivid, concentrated point, why does the poem shift to the singular? God created man in his own image. Now one of the most obvious thoughts is a reference to the Trinity. Us are must refer to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The problem with what's an obvious and, and frankly sort of down the way a profoundly important observation the problem is that the Trinity is not obvious until the birth of Jesus. Instead the Old Testament has various adumbrations of the Trinity. adumbration, A a shadow to the side. (laughs) These are moments in God's self-revelation that are puzzling. And then make more sense after the revelation in Christ's incarnate work. Before Christ, these adumbrations are sort of like something in your peripheral vision. I I I know something's there, but I'm not sure what it is. Um... They're like a tune, playing quietly in the background, and 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 you recognize it. it. Even like it even does that thing where it pulls a certain feeling out of you, and you can't remember the the title, and you couldn't you couldn't sing it, but if you sit quietly, that's how the Trinity is in the Old Testament. Now it's generally thought, and you can see how this is a good observation. That polytheism was so ingrained in the ancient world that the Trinity was left unaddressed in order to avoid really gross and passionate misunderstanding. God sending Moses to gather these slaves out of Egypt. Monotheism was the first and urgent point. And and you see Moses do this in Deuteronomy 6. 6, 6.4 is called the Shemaz. It's famous because it's been isolated in in the, the faith of God's people down through the centuries. Moses wrote God's words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Without more than the peripheral vision, if all you had was an adumbration, how could the original audience understand that us and our? Now, now sometimes appeal is made to what is called the royal we, and I'll be honest, I only recognize that from Bugs Bunny cartoons, because when you had that petty little king being petty little king, he always spoke with we. Um, But this was how European kings three millennia after Moses, and a very different place. That royal we was how European kings would frame official statements by putting them into the plural, we, our. But that simply was not a custom in the ancient Near East. It's not. That was 3,000 years earlier and (laughs) more than many, many miles away not how they they did this now it could be that this expression let us make it could be plural used for self-deliberation like when you talk to yourself and you say how am i going to fix this problem that's self-deliberation the plural could well be that that's possible and and this one this idea of what we make or that we it really felt fits well with Isaiah 40 another place where god through his prophet is hammering polytheism is saying no god but the one god and the, the point there is that god doesn't consult with anyone Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? To take let us as God addressing himself in this fashion, that that, that could make sense. Now, a common, an ancient way of understanding those plurals may be very surprising to you. And that is, God is there addressing the angels. The angels that we saw bursting forth in uncountable numbers to tell a bunch of shepherds that Jesus was born. The angels that everywhere in Scripture we see them and they they shine with the afterglow of God's presence. At the end of Revelation, John, the seer, receiving these visions from God, is confronted with the angel, and John bows down to him. The angel says, Get up. No, I'm a servant just like you. The, the, these are real beings. And so, a very ancient way of understanding this, very similar to our call to worship, where God is described as the great one over all the heavenly beings, that in their counsel. That language for communication back and forth that leads to events. He is greater than all. This is how many, ancient and now, understand these plurals. God's addressing the angels. You see, mankind has a place on earth that's like God and the angels have in the unseen realms. As the host of angels reflect God's glory in the unseen realm, so men and women do on the earth. But mankind is not like the angels in God's presence. They aren't like mirrors reflecting that brilliance. Unlike the angels, men and women are made in his own image. They're not junior angels, earthly angels. They are directly the display of God's glory on the earth. This is the same comparison of men and angels that you're probably familiar with from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. There's much more to the definition of the image of God. Again, your short of catechism question 10 gives a really succinct fullness God created man, male, and female after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. The crucial point about the image in Genesis 1 is this. Men and women display God's glory on the earth. You know, We actually see this in the Ten Commandments that we read aloud together. Deuteronomy chapter 4, which in terms of time and history was in the experience. It was part of the memory of the people who first received Genesis 1. Deuteronomy 4 emphasizes that the Ten Commandments were not just rules, but an actual revelation of God Himself. It says in Deuteronomy 4, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form, there was only a voice. And the structure of the Ten Commandments really is an unpacking of what it means to be made in God's image. The Ten Commandments that are about you, they reveal God as seen in his image bearer. I am the Lord your God who brought you out You shall, you shall, you shall, you shall. There was no image. There was no form. God revealed himself on Mount Sinai. There is a voice in these 10 words. Who is the true and living God? The deliverer who made you to live this way. A wholesome human life can be described in these 10 directions of the moral law, but it is crucial that you not mistake them for mere rules and regulations, the, the, the patterns that should be given to these earthly critters. They're not even the most important rules. That's not enough to say. Human beings are called to perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience because they are called to display the glory of God on the earth. This is what your life is about, and for this Jesus rescues you. His resurrection doesn't just mean that someday you will be sinless. It means that someday you will be glorious through and through. Remember how Paul summarizes the fact of universal human sin in Romans 3.23. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point of creation is God's glory on the earth in the lives of men and women. Jesus' resurrection means that by faith in Christ, you do, in actual fact, display the glory of God on earth now. This is why Paul rejoices to hear of his converts' love and faith. This is why you should rejoice and marvel At one another's faith and repentance and love and perseverance. Look there! Christ has accomplished the glory of God is walking around on pairs of feet. The glory of God on earth. This glory is not just a moral halo on individuals walking around, the glory. What men and women are doing on the earth, as angels are busy reflecting God above, what men and women are doing on the earth, this is glory that stretches out and winds around and weaves its way into congregations and communities. The blessing and command given to the image bearers here is often called the cultural mandate. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The glory of God on the earth is to be unfurled in the history of mankind. The cultural mandate means subduing the earth. Exercising dominion over the creation. Subdue means taking mastery over powerful things and shaping them after wisdom as a king under the living God. Displaying God's glory in all the complexity of human civilization. Now that takes time. Especially when you Start with only a pair of image bearers. Filling the earth, subduing all its sturdy structures and potential. Building up dominion over the whole world. This is a calling of centuries, if not millennia. This is generation and generation and generation. Not generation after generation after generation. Generation living with generation, with generation, Adam and son, and grandson, filling the earth, none going away in futility. That, that is human history. And you cannot and must not forget or minimize the carnage and distortion of the history stretching back behind us. But you must realize that the purpose of history was the fullness of earthly time and space combining myriad individual lives and families into a vast and wholesome display of God's glory on the earth. This is what Jesus came to save. Man was given dominion, and he made sin and death the ruler of all things. Jesus came to restore to humanity the crown of glory and honor that he wears, though he be lower. Than the heavenly beings. The son of God became man. To fulfill God's original purpose for creation. The glory of God on earth in human history. And he does this. Through the lives. Of ordinary families. In keeping with God's original purpose. Be fruitful and multiply expresses. The same vibrant and energetic life seen in the plants and animals. But but marriage and family take on the grandest quality in the law of Moses. Mm -hmm. We'll see more of this in weeks to come. Marriage is a covenant. It's analogous to, it shines with the same shape as God's covenant with his people. The instruction of children. Deuteronomy 6 has this as well. The the, the ambition of intergenerational households. These are bedrock priorities in the holy people of God who are organized in Deuteronomy. The, The rest of Genesis, they're ordinary families. Genesis 3 through 11, it traces how sin corrupts families and builds up speed. And consequently, chapter 10 11 corrupts human history. Genesis 12 through 50 is about God's covenant moving, moving forward to bless the entire world through the successive generations of one family. Beginning with Abraham, God sets out to achieve his original purpose. He took Abraham, made him a nobody, living on the margins of a nowhere place. And he worked for the glory of God on the earth in the history of mankind through the life of that ordinary family. Now, This raises many, many, many questions. Understand this. The Son of God became a baby in an ordinary family in order to take dominion over human history and bring God's glory to fill the earth. The God of Genesis 1 did not abandon his purpose. He sent his own Son. God's glory in history. Now I need to remind you, and frankly warn you, at this very time, today, um, the government of Russia is justifying its invasion of U- Ukraine by appealing to an echo and a perversion of this truth. It's stolen out of the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, National Socialism did the same thing. It insinuated itself into the German Lutheran Church in the early 20th century. This talk about glory and human history. um, People who can only be rightly cataloged in terms of their horrors, they love this language. Ordinary families don't invade, they don't despise, they don't coerce or compel, not when they display the glory of God on the earth. But the liars and the schemers and the industrial conquerors cannot squelch the glory of God. He has not abandoned this purpose. Counterfeit glory is dull and twisted, and it has no shine next to the glory of Christ Christ come to bring the glory of God on the earth in ordinary families. On Pentecost, Peter called out, "The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The incarnate Christ is the risen Christ. And he has taken up God's purpose. He is right now. This is happening. He is bringing God's glory on the earth in the history of mankind through the lives of ordinary families. That is what this congregation is. That is what we refer to as foreign missions. God made the world for this purpose. And he sent his son to rescue it from ruin and futility. Jesus has declared his great mandate, echoing, intertwining with the cultural mandate. And he is carrying it out. Hear him. Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you that you have given your Son in our flesh that the crown of glory and honor Might again rule over this world in this world, and that we as his people might share in the goodness of his realm. We thank you so, Father, that you have subdued us, that you not only fight against your enemies but ours. Lord, we thank you that we are called to live lives of truth and love and fidelity, to rejoice in all the gifts that are focused in family and that echo out. We thank you, Lord, that you've gathered us into the household of God, that we are brothers and sisters, not just generation after generation, but generation beside generation beside generation. Oh, Lord, work with us. Let the glory of God on the earth squeeze out into our history and history around us. Let us live and love in your family. Pray in your Son. Please.